Okay, Jesse, I'll give you a five count. Four, three, two. Hi, I'm Kevin. If you don't know who I am, I'm Kevin Rust. I'm uh, not Pastor Mylon. Pastor Mylon's taking a well-deserved day off today, and he's entrusted me to give, provide you with the lesson. I'm very excited to do that and very gratified. So uh, today's scripture is another chapter in the life of King David, Israel's most famous king. We're going to cover a lot of ground, and we're going to see that there's a lot going on uh, along the way. We will see that as king, your decisions can have a cost. And that sometimes unexpected things happen just because of your decisions. We'll encounter holiness and humility. We'll encounter joy and jealousy. And we may even get to talk a little bit about worship. But first, let's take a few moments and pray and ask God to be part of this uh, worship time. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we come to you and acknowledging your great creation of the world and that we are so blessed by you and how many times you've reached out to us in the past weeks and months to help us and to help us understand what we can do to help others. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for so much for your, for your presence in our lives, for your great mercy and grace to us. And that you give this to us freely. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But your grace is free for us. Lord, we ask that you would provide to our, our world some comfort at this time. Right now we're reeling under the pressure of a, of a disease that we didn't expect and we don't know how to really deal with in any constructive way. Uh, it, it's coming up now in places where it was not expected. Lord, we ask that it would be relinquish that somehow you would help us help the doctors help the scientists and help the nurses and the uh, the other health care practitioners to to help those who are in need and to give them the right treatments to know what's true and what isn't and and to make this uh, disease go away Lord that's had an effect on our country too and just the number of cases are up and up and up and Lord we ask that you would help us bring them down help us to find a way to to be uh, cognizant uh, of each other in a way that uh, we can help the, the, this uh, pandemic, this COVID, to go away and to be cognizant that you know, people need to work and people need to, to meet together, but we don't know how to do that and yet take care of each other and guard each other from that uh, disease. Lord, we ask for relief from the disease. But we also ask for, in our country, for relief from uh, violence and for relief from the tension that's coming because people are um, objecting to the racism that has been going on. The, the, um, it's been a part of our system for so long that some of us don't even notice anymore. Take it for granted that that's just the way it is and how it's going to be. Lord, we ask that you would relieve that. Help us to overcome that racist thought, that racist strain in our lives, to provide the justice that only you can provide for people. Help us, Lord, as a church to be part of that healing. Lord, we want to see our nation healed and become stronger than ever before. We ask, Lord, that that justice would be seen and that you would be at the head of it. 
Lord, we enter a season of political strife and turmoil, and we ask again, Lord, for your guidance and your faith, and and to know that the people that we are choosing to be our uh, representatives in the world are the people that you would have us choose, that we're not choosing them for uh, the wrong reasons, but for your reasons. Lord, I ask, too, for your blessing on our church as it is, is, is a part of our community, that you would give us the guidance that we need as elders and deacons to, to do what's right in your sight. We're we making decisions about when we can uh, gather together again and when we can be uh, a family again in a very literal way, Lord. We'll be making those decisions soon, and I ask for your guidance and your, your prayers about it, not just when, but how we do that in a safe and honoring way. Lord, I ask for your blessing on our pastor, Pastor Marlon, and our other pastors in our midst, Pastor Terry at Renewing Life. I ask that he would be blessed as he tries to find new and creative ways to reach out to his community. ask for your blessing on um, Pastor Danita at um, Wayfarer's Inn. We ask that uh, her, her witness would be strengthened to you, Lord. I want to pray, too, for our retired pastors in our midst, for Stephen and Clyde, that you would give them the uh, opportunity to, to share their wisdom in walking with the Lord. Lord, I want to pray for this little church, too, that we would be your church in St. Peter's and in St. Charles and in St. Louis and in the world, that we would do what you want us to do. Sometimes, Lord, it's hard to know. Help us to step out in faith and to know what you would have us do and where you would have us be and the kind of church you would have us be. Help us, Lord, to love each other in a way that is honoring to you. Help us to love you in a way that worships you. And Lord, today as I give the message, help me to say your words and not my own. I ask this all in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, our story today begins with a decision. David's decision. It's a decision that first seems maybe a little arbitrary. Something like, maybe it's not that consequential. Something like, hey, let's rearrange the furniture in this room. Or something like that. There's a lot more to it than that. So let's read. We're going to start in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-5. through 5. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up... From there, the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So I think we need a little backstory here, maybe. David is now the undisputed king of Israel. His mentor, father-in-law, slash Rival slash foe, Saul, is out of the picture, as Pastor Milo mentioned in last week's message. Saul was killed in the battlefield, and after a short period of civil unrest, David emerged as the king, first the king of Judah, and then 
the king of all of Israel. At this point, though, David was still very much a warrior king. And one of his first actions as king was to take over one of the last remaining Canaanite strongholds in all of Israel, the big pagan city on the hill that was known as Jerusalem, right in the middle, right square in the middle of Judah's territory. Now, we tend to identify Jerusalem very strongly with the nation of Israel and with the Jewish people, but it wasn't at that time. It was held by a, uh, a pagan um, people called the Jebusites. So when uh, David conquered Jerusalem, it became, for him, an important city. In fact, he, he went in there and he decided that he liked it a lot. He built up the city and built up the surrounding area, and he even moved his capital to Jerusalem. He built himself a palace and moved in. But there was something missing in David's life. Do you know what it was? No, not his sheep. It was, <laughs> it was God. What David was missing was God. See, David had developed a strong relationship with the Lord. Of course, as a boy wandering around in the hills around Bethlehem, he came to appreciate God's creation. Then later, as a young man, he learned to rely on God's guidance and his strength and his protection. And he learned to trust God when he was on the run, especially when he was on the run, dodging from cave, cave to cave pursued by Saul. And at the ripe old age of 30, he longed to be close to God again, to have God's counsel, to enjoy his closeness and his presence. Now, at this point in the story, the scripture we read is actually a little bit incomplete. See, the story is also retold in another part of the Bible, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And I would encourage you to go take a look at that passage if you have a chance, because it includes some details that the 2 Samuel version just doesn't. For example, the part I read that says David gathered 30,000 men together to move the ark from the place where it had been lodged in Kirath-Jerim, which is a town about 12 miles west of Jerusalem. And this account, it seems to be a little one-sided, like David is saying, hey, I'm issuing a royal decree here, ye go, go to Kirath-Jerim and bring forth the ark to Jerusalem. But that's not really how it was. The Chronicles account reveals to us a couple of important details that the story, that make the story more complete in my mind. Um, for example, during the entire time that he was king, the entire reign of Saul, he never once bothered about the ark. Not once. It had been sitting there in that town of Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years, undisturbed, unnoticed, unwanted maybe, even to go that far, at, at least by Saul. It seems as though Saul felt that he was the king, he could make the decisions. He could do what he wanted. And at first it seems like David is kind of doing the same thing. Making the sweeping, royal, unilateral decision that the ark should be here now, not there. Uh, but according to the Chronicles, David had the idea to move the ark. But before he did anything, he consulted literally everyone. He called in the high priests, the Levites the tribal leaders, and asked them what, if they thought it was a good idea to move the ark to Jerusalem. When they all had an emphatic yes, only then 
did David assemble the 30,000 to move the ark? And again, it wasn't because it was that heavy. Two men could carry it. No, the reason that so many people were needed to move the ark was that it was going to be a parade. Harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums. I had to look that one up. That's a sort of like a big metal castanet. And cymbals all together, marching on, boom, playing the songs. Now we all know about the ark, right? We've all seen Indiana Jones risk his life and limb to rescue the ark from the Nazis, only to have it become more lost than ever. Right? But if all you know about the Ark is from the movies, then you never really knew the Ark. The Ark, or its full name is the Ark of the Covenant. It had been crafted together by Moses' artisans during the time when the Israelites wandered in the desert, many generations before David's time. The Ark was basically a golden box. And before you ask where the children of Israel got gold in the middle of the desert, well, it wasn't by prospecting. If you remember, before they left Egypt, the Egyptians loaded them up with all the gold and silver that they could carry because the Egyptians just wanted them out of there. Want them out of the way. Go. Take this. Go. If this will get rid of you. That's kind of what the Egyptians were saying. Take this gold. So it's interesting to me, the ark was literally made out of the treasure of Israel's enemies. Now, the ark was golden, but it wasn't solid gold. It wasn't pure gold. It was, because it was big, okay? It was uh, two and a half cubits uh, by one and a half cubits by another one and a half cubits. If you don't know what a cubit is, that's, uh, it totals up to about uh, 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. And for our metric friends, that's about 1.4, I'm sorry, 1.1 uh, four meters by 0.69 meters by 0.69 meters. So that's pretty big. It's about as big as my coffee table downstairs. And if it were made of solid gold, it would be too heavy to lift. But it, was, it wasn't. It was actually a wooden box covered in gold. So that's, you know, that's fairly heavy anyway. But And it also had a lid. And the lid was also wood covered in gold. But on the top of the lid was the most interesting feature about the ark. It was two golden figures of cherubim. And we think of a cherubim as being kind of a baby-like angel, you know, like, oh, we decorate uh, uh, the, the roof of a church with that or something. But that's not how the Bible describes the cherubim. The cherubim were described in the Bible as these avenging angels, these really strong spiritual creatures that would, you know, that were not, nothing to toy with. Uh, anyway, these two angels on top of the ark are facing each other with outstretched wings. And one wing goes out like this, and the other one goes up like that. And if you imagine two angels facing each other in that, that kind of forms a seat, right? A square. And that seat was called the mercy seat. The ark was called the ark of the covenant because it literally contained the covenant that God had made with the Israelites. The promises of God were there in that ark. For example, tablets on which the three, the Ten Commandments were written were in, carried in the ark. A jar with manna from the desert was there in the ark. Uh, Aaron's staff, I don't know if you remember this story, but Aaron's staff that had sprouted and bloomed while it was in the desert, that was in there. And then a, a recent addition was a box of gold nuggets that the Philistines had, had donated to the Israelites when they return the ark <laughs> after borrowing it for a few years. Uh, that's another story. Though. We, we won't get into detail about it today. But the important thing about the ark, the most important thing about the ark, 
wasn't the gold, and it wasn't the angels, and it wasn't even what it contained, but what it represented to the Israelites. See, the ark wasn't an idol, not something to be worshipped itself, but the thing that it represented was to be worshipped. It represented God's covenant, his promise to deliver the children of Israel to their own land. So the ark was thought to be, I've called part of it the mercy seat, but that was thought to be the very throne of God on earth. The very presence of the living Lord with them. The ark was holy. And God's presence resided with it. So David, by wanting to bring the ark to Jerusalem, was actually expressing his desire to bring God closer to him. He wanted God's blessing on him as a warrior and as a king. He wanted God to dwell with him. And he was calling out to be loved. But then, this happened. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6-11 through 11. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of the Lord because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because God's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. My reaction when I first read this was, what? Poor Uzzah. I mean, all he did was try to keep the ark from falling over, right? He just stuck out his hand and bam. This doesn't seem fair, does it? Even David, God's man, is angry about this. He's so mad at God. He even gave the place its own name, which means outbreak against Uzzah. But why? Why did God make this happen? Why did he let this happen? Well, it turns out for a lot of reasons. Remember one thing about the ark, right? It was holy. It was supposed to be respected. It was supposed to be reverenced and revered. And David knew that. God had given instructions, strict instructions, specific instructions about how the ark was to be transported, and it was not by ox cart. The Levites, the people dedicated to the service of the Lord, the deacons of their time, were supposed to carry it, but only they were after they had been consecrated. They were supposed to be ritually clean, washed, dressed in special new clothing, and they were supposed to transport the ark with special gilded rods. And they were supposed to do it reverently. What's more, Uzzah knew this too. He was a Levite himself. He, of all people, should have been aware that what they were doing was wrong. 
It's like this. We all kind of think like David and Uzzah, don't we? We know the right way to do something. The way God wants us to act. But it's such a hassle. So we take a shortcut. We do it our own way, and that works for a while, right? Then something happens. Something weird. Something dumb. Something unexpected. And something upsets the ox cart, if you will. And then we try to fix it. We try to fix it ourselves. And it just makes it worse. David, with Uzzah's help, had taken the same shortcut that their enemies, the Philistines, had taken and put the ark up on an ox cart to move it. Again, that's another story. But David was in a hurry to get that ark up the hill to Jerusalem. Those Levites move pretty slow. And it takes forever for them to get ready. They've got to get consecrated and everything. It takes forever. Besides, the ox cart thing had worked out for the Philistines, right? Right? So then the outcome is this. David is very angry. Because Uzzah was dead? Well, maybe. But maybe it's because his dream of bringing the Holy Ark into his new capital of Jerusalem had been dashed. As a matter of fact, it seems David's kind of scared of that, right? He, he can't go any further. He's a little bit afraid that he's going to be the next one to get zapped. How am I going to get the Ark now, he says. So David makes a handoff. Instead of proceeding to Jerusalem, David parks the ark in the house of Obed-Edom. And there it sits for three months. So did David just dump the ark and run for cover? Kind of sounds like that. Was he trying to divert God's attention to someone else? I don't know, I took this to be more like an act of Obed-Edom's part. Because he was a Levite himself. We, learn, we don't learn that in this passage, but... Uh, Reading about him, I, I researched him, and actually I think he was a Levite too. He saw David's problem, his predicament, and he said, I, I will offer up my household to, to keep the ark in for now, for, for, to help you out, David, so that it's in a safe place and a reverence place. And as a result, Obed-Edom and his whole family, his whole household were blessed. Let's read on. 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 through 19. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of, the, of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place beside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. 
After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. So a little time goes by and someone brings the news to David, hey, you know that Obed-Edom guy that we left the ark with? Things are going pretty well for him, and it's because of the ark. Hmm. Maybe God isn't so mad after all. Maybe, David, if you brought that ark into Jerusalem now, you'd be blessed too. David mulls this over. And again, there are some details in the Chronicles part that, this time it's Chronicles, First uh, Chronicles chapter 15, that are left out in the Second Samuel account. And I hope you don't mind, but I'm, I'm going to quote David what he did, says about moving the ark from the Chronicles account. He says in First Chronicles 15, 2, it says, Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. So, uh, no more ox carts, huh, David? No. No more ox carts. But this time, just to be sure, David takes it a little easy, all right? He lets the Levite take just six steps forward. He kind of looks around, maybe waiting for the lightning to strike. But it doesn't. What a relief. David, being grateful and relieved and honored, expresses his gratitude by making a sacrifice right then and there. God is pleased. And David, David is overjoyed. Let the parade begin. Let the party begin. Try to imagine the sight. Thousands of people lining the streets. The harps. The lyres. The sistrums. <laughs> I can't get over that word. All the music. All the songs. Now, here's an aside. I have to tell you. When I was talking about this message with Anne uh, a few days ago, she brought up an interesting question. She said, who do you think wrote those songs? I scratched my head for a minute. Like, I don't know. And then I finally got it. It was David. David wrote the Psalms. He wrote the songs to the Lord. Maybe even, maybe this psalm that they used to sing in front of the ark was the same Psalm 105 that we used in today's worship. Think about that talking about the covenant of God and how it had been fulfilled. The very warrior king himself provided not just the parade, not just the excitement, not just the food, but he even provided the music. I'm trying to think of a parallel. A king bringing holiness into Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem that had just been won back from the, from the uh, pagans a few years before. Bringing with them joy and celebration. Bring anything to mind? Anyway, David. David is overjoyed. David is dancing. Yes, dancing. And jumping. And in my imagination, he's doing cartwheels in front of the Holy Ark as it's brought 
one step at a time, right in the beat with the Sistrums, <laughs> up the hill into the fortress city. David's heart is overflowing, and he can't restrain himself. One other thing, another aside. Why was this event so important? I mean, I get it from David's perspective. He was the new king that God had chosen, and now he's choosing God to be by his side, right? But why was everyone else so excited about this? Why were the common people and the priests and the Levites and the elders and everybody, why were they all behind this? And not just behind it, but excited about it. Wasn't the ark just a, a symbol after all? In a way, yeah, it was a symbol. A symbol of God's covenant with the Israelites. A symbol of his promise to deliver them from Egypt and make them into a nation. He had led them, the ark. God, with the ark, had led them through the wilderness. He protected them throughout the time they fought for the land to get it away from their enemies. Bring, but bringing the ark into Jerusalem was kind of a final step in that whole process. For the people of Israel, it was a way of saying, the conquest is complete. See, as I mentioned, Jerusalem was the last big fort, the last vestige of the pagan Canaanites within Israel's borders. Now, sure, there were still enemies on all sides, but within Israel, this was the last city to fall. Sure, this was the heart of Judah, the heart of Israel. And this act was this act of bringing the ark into it was sealing the deal, putting icing on the cake, finalizing the contract, and acknowledging that the covenant, that first covenant, had in its way been fulfilled. Palestine was conquered, and the Lord was pleased. And the people were partying, and the king was leading the way. And I mean David was worshiping, at long last, the Lord, the Lord who had picked David out of the crowd, who had anointed him as king, who had emboldened him before the giant, who had sustained and indeed strengthened him in the wilderness, the very Lord who had preserved and protected the little nation of Israel, the Lord was there with David, with all the people. David could not pull back. His heart is so full that he can't help himself. He worships like the day he was waiting for had finally come. But there's a problem. When the party's over and everyone has had their cake, David goes home to the palace to bless his family. Michal, his wife, well, one of his wives, comes out to greet him. And she's not pleased. Read with me. 2 Samuel 6, verses 20 through 23. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house. 
when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Do you remember Michal? Do you remember who she was? She was David's wife, for sure. But she was more than that. She was the daughter of the former king, Saul. And of all the people there in Israel, Saul's daughter seems to be the one with the biggest problem with this whole bringing the ark into Jerusalem thing. Is that how a king acts? She sarcastically asked. Showing off for the slave girls? Wow. What? She's clearly upset with David. On the surface, it seems like she sees him as kind of a show-off. Maybe she feels vulnerable. I mean, she's got to be a little worried that one of those slave girls would catch David's eye. And She was the first wife, but the first of many, eight in all, that David had. And she's kind of seen him come and seen him go when it came to other women. But I think it may have been more than that. Sure, she was jealous of the other women. We could argue that she had a right to be. But deeper down, she was jealous of David, the king. She was looking down on him because she was comparing him to her father, Saul the king. Michal had been brought up in the household of Saul. She had seen how Saul conducted himself as king of Israel. Regal. Pompous, maybe? Arrogant, maybe? Maybe. And as king, remember, Saul had not much had, had much regard for the ark. For God, maybe. It might be that Mikhail couldn't understand God's fasc- or, I'm sorry, David's fascination with the ark. Because of all the kings she had known, that is Saul, none had cared about it. Moreover, as David grew, uh, um, excuse me, as Saul grew more and more distant. And let's face it, more paranoid of David and his popularity, Mikhail saw it. She learned from her daddy that David was out for glory and couldn't be trusted. And then David split, left town, holed up in the wilderness, because Saul was trying to kill him, abandoning Mikhail and picking up at least one more wife, Abigail, along the way. I'm sure that sitting home in the palace, Mikhail heard some interesting comments about David's loyalty and his trustworthiness. But whatever her motivation, Mikhail is not happy with her husband, the king. Her remarks are pretty barbed. And David's reply is pretty barbed as well. He says, in essence, I wasn't worshiping to impress you or anyone else. I was worshiping before the Lord. The same one who chose me as king. I don't care if I'm the only. David has determined that whatever kind of king Saul was, David would be his own kind of king. He would be a king before God. He would be a king before the people. He would care more about worship than about what other people thought. He would care more about holiness. And he would worship the Lord. 
So where does that leave us? What's our reaction to holiness? How will we worship? The ark was one of, if not the holiest item that the Israelites need. And yet, we see at least one of them that doesn't care much for it. We see this in our lives as well, don't we? When we take time out of our day to read the Bible, we take one morning a week to worship. What will others, what will our friends, what will our neighbors think? Some of them, no doubt, will look at us with disdain. They won't recognize the things that we see as holy. They won't respect us when we do. Many people mock the things that we consider holy. And others just ignore them. And you know what? That's okay. No, I don't mean that it's okay in the sense that they're right. and that, Or that we shouldn't regard things that are holy. I mean that if people disdain our worship, we should worship anyway. If people ignore the holy, we should worship anyway. If for any reason we're constrained, we're not allowed to worship, we should worship anyway. Why? Not because I say so. Because our God is a great and wonderful God who keeps his promises. We worship him because he's worthy. We worship him because of what he has done for us. We can can worship with true worship, just like David showed us. I don't mean dancing and jumping around, or maybe I do. Because I mean worshiping is worshiping God from your heart. The only true worship is worship that comes from your heart. I can't know for you whether that's jumping around for joy or quietly contemplating or singing out loud or sniffing back holy tears. I can't say that for you because I don't know how the Holy Spirit is working in your life. All I know is that when he does, you will worship with your heart. I mentioned the arrival of the ark in the context of other Bible stories earlier. Do you remember? I hope it sparked a thought in your mind. The thought of our Lord Jesus himself entering, bringing holiness into Jerusalem. The King of Kings riding humbly into the city of Jerusalem, David's city, with the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, that's a verse from the Psalms, written by David, a thousand years before Jesus. David, by bringing the ark into Jerusalem, is foreshadowing the coming of true holiness. See, by the time of Jesus, the ark had been lost. Carried away, perhaps, by an enemy. Maybe it was destroyed. Maybe it was hidden, and hidden so thoroughly that it's never been recovered. But what Jesus was bringing into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, because that's what I'm talking about, was a holiness that was that far exceeded the Ark of the Covenant. His holiness, like the Ark, 
was the presence of God. But he wasn't an inanimate object. He was a living man. Jesus was the real thing, the embodiment of holiness, the fulfillment of the law. Through him, God was going to complete another covenant in that same city a week later. God really did dwell with the people, even for a short time. Through Jesus, God opened up the door to that new covenant. And it's open to us as well. And that's something to truly celebrate.